Welcome to the Twilight Conversations. My name is Jimmy, and in this podcast, I'll be exploring human relationships, human potential, and that curious space between the dark and the light. So, hello, and welcome to episode 31 of the Twilight Conversations. And this is a follow on, I think they all are really, but it's a direct follow on from the last. Uh, episode which was on creative flow uh, in, and healing there and I think that came out this is Sunday so it came out came out uh, today and I'm recording this one now on the same day um, and it can come out tomorrow or Tuesday so they're close together uh, then get back to weekly kind of thing um, as with Christmas and then with Connie's passing uh, you know things change and that's the way life is so, hello and welcome to you all. So I'm just going to continue talking to you about, you know, another would be a psychotherapy or a healing slant on it, but just in general what this whole creative flow is about, what they call the flow space, being in flow, creativity, play, playfulness, you know, just more open ways of thinking, different ways of looking at the world, you know, uh, getting the straight jackets off and, and, and having fun with it even, you know, enjoying enjoying that and what it means because if you watch children playing or animals jump you know playing together it's like you can see they're completely in creative you know creative flow um particularly when children are unconscious themselves and they let go and they just have fun they don't care what they look like and they laugh and they fall and they think did it you know so that it's that space really you know uh in in the psyche that gets a bit like as I said, straight jacketed a bit as we get older, you know, depending on our culture, you know, and while there are beautiful parts of Christianity, uh, very mystic, beautiful, wonderful aspects of it, you know, certain at certain elements of Catholicism has straight jacketed that, and it's, it's true of other religions. And uh, cultures, societies all influence that, you know, that the kind of taboo, you can't do this, this is the way to do it. The education system never suited me, you know, in the, back in the 70s, but uh, I, I hope it's evolved a bit now. Um, but it just, I don't mean to sound real elite because I think this is true for thousands of people. It just didn't suit my learning style, you know? Um, I think I've met so many people that's the case. However, you got the odd teacher and there were two come to mind, uh, in a kind of secondary school or whatever it was called. The one after you were a kid, secondary. It was a community school, Greendale and Kilbarrick at the time. And... One was Dermot Kearney, who was the art teacher. I'm sure he won't mind me giving him a shout out. Uh, he was extraordinary, you know, man. I uh, hope he's not embarrassed listening to that, but not only was he a great art teacher, he was just a, a really good guy, you know. He just was very fair and very real and a bit of a hippie dude in his day. And he, he introduced me to music and the whole class. He'd bring in albums. I think I've probably said this before to the art class. How inspired was that? He'd find out what you liked and then he'd introduce you to all the stuff. So he'd have Led Zeppelin playing and a bit of Bowie and, you know, I mentioned Carol King Tapestry. He bought that album and he had a lovely taste. I knew the album anyway, but I really got to love it and it was very soothing because I was a bit disruptive in classes and I loved it and then I was good at art in that sense, that type of art. And there was never, you know, double art session, not a trouble, never, never got kicked out of that class. So I think that's interesting. He was great, just really, really good, very uh, inventive. Even around the area, I remember, I remember him doing a kind of a um, a local kind of mural thing with just to, to kind of the graffiti he was getting a bit, you know, you had all that over the place. You got this great idea and you got locals involved and it was a lovely project, it really was, you know. So that's Derek McCarney and he just, back in the 70s, he was thinking that way. And there was another fantastic teacher and I didn't have her enough, but she was such a kind and creative, loving, loving woman. Her name was... Uh, Maya Lee, and then went on to be Maya Glacken. I married Paddy Glacken, the, the famous, very gifted fiddle player. So Maya, if you happen to be listening, I really want to thank you so much. You're such a loving, kind human being. I tested your patience, I'm sure. But you went above and beyond, you know, and you really saw past the, the behavior of, of, of your students, and you really, again, engaged. And then you engaged me and a couple of lads in some creative processes, music and art, and you were just brilliant. So I hope you are well. Um, and thank you so much, both of you. So there we go. Um, they were two very creative teachers coming from. They were kind of at a time, ahead of their time, if you like, you know. 
Um, so I'm just going to continue on talking about that and how that kind of can come into the area of work I'm in. Uh, therapy uh, or healing or you know recovery and all those areas just different ways to look at that you know just again to and I know it's changing to get out of the very rigid style of therapy we often can have you know that was you, you got basically your psychoanalysis which is incredible and all therapy started there we know this and then behaviorism is that how it's pronounced behaviorism came from that and CBT would be part of that that mode you, know, you had Skinner back in the day in Penfield and there's loads loads more that, that began to look you know very practical let's just change the behaviour and, and the truth is they're all valuable you know psychoanalysis was primarily like let's look at the unconscious and it's very Freudian it's very interpretive interpretive which is again can be really interesting and useful you can get lost in a bit of a mind fuck with that but it's incredible it's you know what they were tapping into the, the blue space the flow space but they weren't calling it that you know, and they were quite specific about and what things meant they interpreted for you rather than allowing you to engage in that, you know, in, in that sense. But, you know, you can get very creative psychoanalysts and very creative behavioral therapists, you know. And I think any therapist worth their, their salt will, will have a little knowledge of them all. But, you know, you tend to move in, in, in a particular area. Naturally, I was in, interested in what they called, was it the third wave or something they used to call it? Then was a fourth one humanistic psychotherapy, humanistic integrative psychotherapy, which is kind of a hippie-ish 60s, 70s, you know, Carl Rogers, uh, Abraham Maslow, Rollo May, all these guys with robes and beads and long hair and beards back in California, and the, and this, which ties into something else I'm going to talk about in a minute. Late 60s, mid-late 60s, you know, and they were they were like, peace and love, man, Let, let's look at it some other way. They were developing, you know, uh, they were just shifting out of that a little bit and kind of going, yeah, that that that's useful, but like the people don't always respond to that. That's they were much more. The whole idea of the humanistic psychotherapy was moving away from the therapist being this this kind of powerful expert who was going to fix you or help you or you know interpret what was wrong with you kind of thing. You know, to the whole relational, which I love the relational piece. What does that mean? You know. Uh, what, what are we calling a problem? Is that really a problem? Let's work together. And the whole, I mean, there's, there's hundreds of books written on it, so don't, don't take what I'm just giving you a tiny snippet. But really the core of humanistic psychotherapy, the premise is the answers are already in you or we'll find them between us. You've got your own healing in you. I'm not going to heal you. It's, it's a less, if I want for a better term, arrogant approach. And like some people could disagree with me on that. Because it depends on the person, doesn't it? You can be practicing that and be really arrogant. I'm sure I have been in the past. <laughs> Could be in the present, I don't know. But you know what I mean? It's more of a very much creativity, openness, different ways of looking at things. Uh, what works for you? What, you know, what, you know, can we, it taps into, it's a bit more playful, a bit more flowing, if you like, a bit more in Gestalt, for example, Gestalt therapy, they've got experiments. Let's try it. We'll try this out, which I love. You know, we try this out. And, and from that, you'd get a, a psychodrama, which is you know, grew out of Gestalt and, and, and parts and all that type of work where it's more exploratory, experimental. Let's let's try this. Let's have a look at that. Oh, it was just more, no problem. You know, you don't do any harm. Let's see. And it much, engages the client much, much more. It calls them a client, not a patient, which is also interesting. Uh, nothing wrong if, you, if people are okay being called patients, but it's 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 much more really like not oh, I'm here because there's something wrong with me and I have a problem and and again we'll talk and you'll find out what it is. It's more like it's a process of life. We're all in it, you know. Let let let's have a look at it. Let's see what comes up. And yeah, okay, yeah, we're agreeing in this space. I'm going to hold a space as the therapist and I have a certain amount of knowledge and awareness and I'll create a boundary, absolutely, and all of that. But uh, let let's explore together. Let's let's take a look. You know, so your core Rogerian, you know, non-judgmental, congruent, uh, generous, genuine, you know. I was having a conversation with someone recently about, you know, as the years have passed by, because Rogerian therapy started in mid-late 60s, Carl Rogers. And it's it, it's kind of annoys me a little bit. Now in psychotherapy training, you'll hear students kind of going, yeah, that's Rogerian, it's kind of old, we've all gone past that kind of thing. Now, not everybody's saying that. But what I'm saying to you is, no matter what style of therapy you're using, Rogers was talking about respect. 
he was talking about genuineness. It's it's core conditions. It's who you are as a person. And that's another big thing that's more important in humanistic therapy is the, the therapist as a human being rather than this kind of robotic person who's going to take notes. And, you know, and again, I know some good work can come from that. I'm not poo-poo and that. If that works for you, great. I'm a big person, whatever. John Lennon, whatever gets you through the night, you know, whatever works. Um, so... I kind of feel Rogers gets misunderstood as like a bit naive and that was a bit hippie-ish, wasn't it? It was all, you know, you need to, you can practice any form of therapy and hold Rogerian principles because of its exquisite attention on the reverence of the human being and the belief that the human being has within him or her very deep ability and intelligence to heal. They might have a bit stuck Let's let's find that, you know, the, your classic. Let's let's water the plant. Let's give it sunlight enough. Let's nurture, and if you do that, you know, we're all good. So I think it was Maslow that said, "Let's focus on what's right with people rather than what's wrong." You know, we're not ignoring what's wrong, but if you focus on what's good about someone, whatever's wrong will start to fall away. Anyway, it's, it's back door, front door, whatever way you want to come in. You know. There's one for Mary and Tess, if you're listening, you know, <laughs> they're two, two colleagues I work with and we had a great fun about that, that phrase recently uh, in a kind of a supervision meeting we're having. Anyway, so you see where I'm going and I know I've mentioned these things before, but they're always worth them the show. Given I'm talking about the, the, the kind of hippie era in, in humanistic psychotherapy of the late 60s, early 70s, again, we've just lost or another great musician, singer, songwriter, David Crosby during the week died and if you're probably if you're not in around my age you that may mean nothing to you of course but my childhood was you know littered with Crosby Crosby's voice David Crosby was the lead singer songwriter with the band The Boards big big hippie movement in the 60s flower power this is the time right so David Crosby was with The Boards but what you'll probably be more familiar with and The Boards had huge hits they did a lot of Dylan songs they did Mr. Tambourine Man um, what was it, uh, Torn Torn loads of songs you know great great band The Boards and he developed then a relationship with Stephen Stills who was in a band called Buffalo Springfield right 60s band with Neil Young now, Neil Young stayed with them, or went a bit solo. So Stephen Stills joined with Crosby. And unusually then from England, Graham Nash, who was with the Hollies, they became friends. So you had Crosby, Stills, and Nash, right? CSN. And they were just, the harmonies they created, I've never heard anything like them since. This very hippie-ish, very mystical sound, very peace, peaceful healing lovely, lovely, Crosby, Stills, Nash. And at some point, Neil Young, Neil Young kept coming in and out at different times, right? But they were considered this super group. And particularly David Crosby and uh, Graham Nash had these just magical harmonies. They were aligned together. If you listen to them, you know, and Stephen Stills could too, but Stephen was still a fantastic guitarist, uh, for both acoustically and electrically, and, and that was there. So it was this lovely... Uh, recipe if you like these three uh very talented individuals and oozing creativity right so david crosby died now he was about 80 and i'm realizing of course i've said this too uh musical people that i love artists who are all dying understandably because they're they're bound to be 10 15 20 years older than me so they're going to be like 70 80 yeah yeah it's like so and Crosby had a notorious addiction for years, particularly like the Crosby, Stills and Nash and Crosby, Stills and Nash and Young had huge success. Uh, Song-wise, loads. You're probably, one of my favourites is Sweet Judy Blue Eyes, Marrakesh Express, a lot of people know our house. It's a very, very, very fine house, beautiful little cosy song. Used to be one of the adverts on television, our house. Um, they did uh, Joni Mitchell's Woodstock, they made that kind of famous, they played in Woodstock. Uh, loads and loads of songs. You'll 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 certainly know them. You know. Um, what else was I going to say about that? Um, there was something else. There was a song. That, oh yeah, yeah. Among their many songs, a fabulous song called "Teach Your Children," and it's very kind of prophetic in a way. It's a fabulous song. 
teachers are very simple. But what again, what makes this band is, yeah, they have these mystical, lovely lyrics, but the harmonies are like so seductive. They're just like, whoo, as soon as you hear them, you know, oh my God. And if you don't know them and you hear them, you kind of go, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? They weren't a hits type of band, so to speak. They were very much, yeah, you know, they're all on the Californian scene. What was the Laurel Canyon, you know, you Joni Mitchell and Crosby Stills, Nash and Young and uh, the boards, all that were all hanging around just writing songs and getting high, <laughs> you know, <laughs> smoking hash and uh, whatever they smoked then, weed. It was the whole big vibe then, you know, brilliant music came out of that era. The doors, all of them. That was all there at that time. Um, but yes, see, he passed away. But he uh, into the eighties, like a uh, horrific health issues. He was free basing cocaine, go everything. He he ended up in jail and uh, crashes, and his health was failing badly. And anyway, he had a he had to get a, a liver transplant, and he was just back from death and he, he resurrected his career and joined the lads up again and you know they went on and they fought all the time I was watching an interview about them but they were saying well we're like brothers yeah where they fell out and they, as bands do you know but when they that magic happened unbelievable so again as I touched on in the last podcast and creativity it's almost like they were vessels and very important vessels with whatever they had inside them their flavour came together and created this harmonious, oh, just heaven, you know, heaven. So I think we can have moments of heaven. I think we'll have a lot of heaven when we die, but we can have moments of that. And it's like the spirit in us remembers when we have a beautiful moment, you know. That? And again, I re will repeat this because I absolutely think it's a wonderful saying and really, it really helps me. You know, what? we're not human beings having a spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. And I think that ties in with the creativity. When you touch that moment of magic, it might be a moment. It might last a bit long. We want to, and it passes. I think we're being reminded of where we came from and where we're going back to. That's like, that's why I love them. Enjoy them in the moment and the rest is okay. And then sometimes it's a bit shit. You know, life, we do suffer, don't we? We do suffer, you know. I understand we can create more suffering than we need to and that's part of the therapy process is to how can we reduce that but no matter what we do the nature of being human and I know this is quite, very quite Buddhist is suffering absolutely on this planet and I don't mean that in a negative way it's just a reality and, and the paradox is the acceptance of that can ease the suffering in itself and then I recognise and certainly make patterns that recreate suffering you know same behavior, expecting a different result, you know. Why does that keep happening? Bum, 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 bum. We do the homework. Nope, nope. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. What was I heard recently? It was a, I was talking to somebody about it. Um, it was... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember now. Um, this, this woman had lost her baby and she was, as you can imagine, this was way back in Buddha's time now, so we're talking over 2,000 years ago. And she was in horrific grief, as you can imagine, just distraught. So she, she, she goes to the Buddha in India and she finds him and she says, please, can you bring my child back? I can't, I'm just so grief-stricken. I can't breathe, I can't live. And the Buddha says, okay, so I want you to travel around and find a house, find a, a mustard seed in a house where suffering doesn't exist. There you go. You're going to rest your case. You're not going to find it, are you? You know, uh, and that's the kind of, the metaphor or whatever that is. Is that a metaphor? Um, for being a human being and living. So, uh, we do suffer, for sure. Um, but, you know, as uh, Michael Franti, of Frantoy and Spearhead of the band. Got a fantastic song called Everyone Deserves Music. Sweet music is a great song. Even your worst enemies deserve music. You know, because it's along with other creative aspects, whether that's just watching the sunset or sunrise, just breathing, just being in the moment, enjoying playing with kids, your children, or whatever it is. So you get those moments of magic that remind us of where we're from and where we're going back to. And it won't be that long. That's for sure. 
you know, they're all going. There's no desk, desk hottie, you know, cycling around now, laughing, helping people, drinking tea and smoking like a trooper. <laughs> I'm just going out with a smoke. <laughs> um, okay. That's David Crosby. Rest in peace. He, he had a, he, I, I think he had a very good influence on the world. You know, he admitted himself he was a difficult character. He wasn't always easy in and out of his addiction. But his contribution to music was just extraordinary. And I think he was generous and politically very left-leaning and, and useful and helpful and all of that stuff, you know. Um, you know that term? Yes, I do, Jimmy. It's, it's funny me talking because you think you're talking, to, you are talking to people, but you're not getting a response. Um, that term, fear of missing out. Uh, FOMO has it yeah, FOMO FOMO fear of missing out FOMO I was thinking about that and I have FOMO I fear of missing in <laughs> you know because I, I never I seldom experience fear of missing out but if I'm out I want to be in home <laughs> I know I've uh, related a bit of that before when I talked about being introvert and what that means but uh, yeah no, I don't fear it, but I, I just thought it might flip around, and I'm sure there might be others that's the case. And I, I enjoy out, great, da 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 da. But my little bit of anxiety, like I'm, okay, I want to go back now. I want to go, I want to be, have me pot of tea, watch the program I want to watch, read that particular article, whatever it might be, you know. So I'd miss that, you know. The only thing is, I don't have to fear it because there's no one else involved. It's not like they're all doing it instead of me. I'm, you know. But it might, it might be time I could be doing that, you know, um, if you like. So it just occurred to me it was a funny kind of a thing, you know. So creativity. Now, I think in psychology, they they have tried to, I suppose, uh, com compartmentalize it somewhat, which just defeats the purpose of creativity. But still, you know, they, there's three that you'll hear of in psychology. One's called exploratory the other's called transformational, and the other is combinational creativity, you know. I mean, they self-explanatory really, aren't they, you know. But the idea is that, that your plan and this real process happens. Maybe some people, they're aware of that. I'm just not aware of that process. I'm not saying it isn't there. If I look back, I'll kind of go, yeah, yeah. The one that's, they're all interesting, but the one I'll say a little bit about is the combinational creativity, which again lends us to the idea that in a nice way, there maybe isn't an original idea as such, but there's original ways of doing the same idea. Because I've noticed in therapy, especially in therapy, new, ah, this is, have you heard this new train in the South? Da, 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 and people are all getting really excited about it. And it's great. But it's not that different. <laughs> you know what I mean? I can see, oh, that's just really gestalt, isn't it? That's with a different label on it or, and a different slant. And it's, it's fantastic, different view. So I suppose really the, the the idea that maybe, again, as I touched on in the last one, that somehow all these thoughts, feelings and ideas and magic are all in us and around us in the universe waiting to happen and they fall into us or come out of us at different times and maybe reinvent, recreate and we'll give it our, our flavor or our, our treatment, if you like, of it, you know, in, in that way. I mean, I've likened it to where you read a book or listen to a song, and 20 years later you read the same book and it's a song, you kind of go, oh, I didn't hear that before. I've read that same line. I've said this millions of times, I know, but it's important. And it jumps out at you differently. And that's life, isn't it? So what's different there? The book or has something in me changed? Or, you know, it's saying the same thing, you know. And then that opens up the whole idea of the I, thou. It's a Martin, Martin Buber, who's a Jewish philosopher, kind of, I don't know whether he was a therapist as well. He may well have been a psychologist. He might have been a psychologist, a psychoanalyst. The either relationship, that kind of, the relational, the in-between space. It's not the book and it's not me, but it's the combination of the two. It's when we meet, it's the combination, creates a whole other energy. Yes, it's okay to be individual, but we're interconnected and relational all the time, you know. Um, I get really excited by that. It's, it, it's powerful, powerful, powerful stuff. I was using my, one of my favorite terms, the non sequitur, and I spoke about little feet and fat man in a bathtub. And then it, I remembered a wonderful example of really unconscious, creative, non sequitur writing. And it was by uh, 
the late, great Dory Previn, who wouldn't be, I don't know if everybody knows her, but again, she'd kind of make Leonard Cohen look very happy, right? So <laughs> Dory Previn goes there, she goes into the depths, you know. Um, I would be, I would say, you know, she was probably one of the, not, not the darkest negatively, but she would really go into the depths and explore her own, uh, as Nick Cave does, and I'm going to talk a little bit about Nick Cave in a minute, and, and Leonard Cohen certainly did, but in such a, such a very painful way, but very uplifting, even though it's painful. So she has a fabulous song, many fabulous songs, from an album called Mary C. Brown and the Hollywood Sign, all from 70s, early 70s, early mid-70s. Um, she wouldn't be everyone's cup of tea. Her voice is not quite great. and She hasn't got a sweet voice, but, you know. Um, and she's uh, one of my favourite songs from that album. It's called The Holy Man on the Malibu Bus Number 3. And the kind of idea of the song is she's only a kid and she sees this mystical holy character on the bus and any time her man brings her on the bus she's kind of looking for this holy man because they, they have an interaction, you know. Um, and she's looking for him, you know. But I'm just going to pick out these couple of lines that, that's a beautiful example of the non sequitur, right? The creative non sequitur. It says, I ride the Malibu bus almost every day but no one's seen or heard of him. No one's seen or heard of him. My mother died last May. He had the nicest smile, just like a silver star. It lit up Malibu bus number three. So you can see those lines, just, the, you know, you know, riding the bus every day with no one's seen or heard of him. My mother died last me. You know, you, you, again, if you're having an ordinary conversation, you wouldn't see that. And then, well, he had the nicest smile, you know, and that's the beauty. You don't have to stay with something and kind of go, yeah, I'm going to change subject now. Can I talk about my mother died last me? Because, you know, when you're in conversation and, and as a therapist, obviously, you're trying to get timing right, you know, you're listening and you want to make an intervention and you're waiting for the right gap in the breath and you can go in and say, okay, I'm aware you're saying that. Do you mind if we get back to, without being disrespectful, there's something you said earlier on that I just wanted to come back to, right? Where in, in songs, those rules fall away. You don't have to do that. And, and Dory Previn doesn't do it there, you know? So she's on the bus as a kid, right? And the, this is the, the, the lovely non-sequitur nature of this. She's as a kid on singing about being a kid in the bus. So she's looking for this holy man again. She's on the bus every day and no one she's asking, no one's seen or heard of him. No one's. And obviously she's a kid with her mom on the bus and then she says, my mother died last May. So she's back to being an adult in the song. But when you listen to it, you don't have to think about that. You know, you don't have to, it just happens. I love it. And then he had the nicest smile, just like a silver star. You must have found him. You know, so I just adore that type of uh, writing. Again, it's not everyone's cup of tea at all. You might get a little bit of that in Zen uh, poems, those two or three lines, or the Chinese poems as well, and the Japanese poems are just two or three lines. And Zen, I love, is very creative because it's designed to kind of almost shock you if you're like, oh, that something doesn't make sense. They Zen loves the non sequitur. It's very creative, you know. It's to snap you out of ordinary senses and to drop into something more uh, interesting, more, you know, expansive, more present, more uh, beautiful, whatever way you want to put it. So, yeah, that's Dory Previn, the holy man on Malibu bus number three, you know. I'm, you know, doing kind of non-sequitural links now. As you know, I, I'm probably not going to use the term non-sequitur for ages because I've got two podcasts lately where I've just used it all the time, you know, and I like to just throw it in once or twice just as a bit of fun. So I was going to say about Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds was his band, but it was something I was reading about him. He's got a new book out and check out the title of this book, Tantalizing, right? Faith, Hope and Carnage. I mean, it's got Nick Cave written all over. And it's written by Nick Cave and Sean O'Hagan. Sounds Irish, and I'm sure it might be. Yeah, I think he's a journalist. And it's interviews between the two. I haven't read the book yet. Um, I have that Blinkist thing on my phone, you know. It's a little app, and it gives you a, a book, but it gives you 15 minutes of it. If you don't want to read the whole book, just to decide do I like it or not, or, you know. And I, I had to listen to it on that, and it's just extraordinary. What, and it describes it as, the, the book, as a meditation on faith, art, music, freedom, grief, and love. Yeah, and it's it's really inspired by, because of, uh, Nick Cave's son, Arthur, died uh, back in 2015, I think it might have been. Um, and he was only 15, like 
me wrong about that. And it was a huge tragedy for Nick Cave. He also, like David Crosby, like many musicians, came through really horrendous addiction. Not that there's any good addiction, but really difficult stuff, you know, uh, on that. But there was something uh, that came out in that interview. And Nick Cave said, to create is another way to keep falling in love with the world. Now, I do these podcasts and these geniuses just come out with one line and <laughs> it takes me an hour to describe it. That is just something else, isn't it? To be creative is a way to keep falling in love with the world. And I, I just think, wow, yeah, I love that. It is. Because when, when something like that happens and you get that, wow, something out of the blue, the little intuition, I find it so exciting. I can get a few days out of that, you know, and I do fall in love with the world again, you know. Um, Definitely. Definitely. There was something, that, oh yeah, Nick Cave had an album out, he's loads, loads of albums called The Boatman's Call. I like it, it's a very piano album, it's it's very relaxed, very, you know, because he can be quite erratic in his music, brilliant, dark, very courageous writer, you know, really doesn't settle for, doesn't do the same, you know. But in this album it's really gentle, but there's an exquisitely beautiful track that they really all are, but this one called Into My Arms. And it's just him on a piano. And if you know Nick Cave's voice, it's kind of a deep Cohen-y type, but in his own way. Um I don't believe in an instrumentalist God, but if I did I would want him to look after you. Just oh, it's brilliant. I should have probably checked out the lyrics. But it's the music behind it. It's that lovely piano. It's called "And to Fall Into My Arms Again." You know, I'd, he says, "I don't believe in angels, but if I did, I'd ask them all to gather around you." It's the most gorgeous love song. You know, now he is a very spiritual guy, but he's, he's just using those phrases "Into My Arms" on the boatman's call. I think of the album. Check it out. So, just to swing a little bit back into. Uh, this mysterious, what we're calling, I suppose, great flow that's associated with arts, music, poetry, comedy, and another term, the surrealists. I love surreal, uh, you know, artists like Salvador Dali. There's millions, but he's the famous one with the, you know, that famous one with all the clocks kind of dripping and melting. Everybody knows him, and the one of, of, of Jesus on the cross. Incredible. He's the king of the non sequitur art, you know. Whew. And the Surrealists, they were always doing that type of stuff. And that, that whole movement would have influenced, funny enough, some psychoanalysts. I think particularly Lacanian psychoanalysis was, Lacan was quite influenced by Dali, I think. You know, Dali's work is incredible to look at, you know. I'm not one of those people that can look at art and go, it's not amazing, you know, and pretend there's some meaning that isn't there. It just is, it's just very captivating to look at, you know. Uh, it's very dreamlike. Um, I think actually, the one with the the, uh, the melting clocks and watches was used in a Hitchcock film with Cary Grant. Oh, black and white, fantastic film. What was it called? He falls in love with a psychiatrist, but he's not for patient. There was something, he's accused of a murder he didn't do. Uh, Cary Grant. Oh, it was brilliant. And what was, what was uh, the woman from Casablanca? The Swedish, Ingrid Bergman. Was the psychiatrist? I was a fan, you know, real Hitchcocky, black and white. Oh, what was that film called? It's that somewhere in the blue now. The name of that film, it, but it's not dropping into my mind. It's not coming up. So look, if anyone knows that, you're probably screaming that. And I, re I remember, hopefully, before the end of the podcast, which might be quite soon. Not the Torn Court. No, no, I'm on that. You know, when you're on that one, now you're trying to think of it. Torn Court was another one. Something lines. There's something about lines in it. You have enough information, you'll find it. It's a fantastic film. I, there's a dream sequence in it as part of the kind of, she was helping him, uh, she's doing psychoanalysis with him, trying to help him f figure out what happened to, to prove he didn't kill this person. And there's a dream sequence and, and Dali, Dali's work is used in it. It's fucking fantastic. And, and the, you know, even there is, there is interpretation, which is not everyone's cup of tea. It's really, really brilliant. It's just a great, great film. And, and that lovely Hitchcock touch and two fantastic actors, um, so I'm tempted to Google it when I'm sitting here, but I'm not going to. I'm going to sit with the discomfort of not knowing. <laughs> there you go. That's the type of person I am. But, you know, it's like, I, I'm, it's no good being humble unless you tell people. <laughs> I have to tell you. So to swing back into uh, the therapy, psychotherapy, 
uh, the humanistic psychotherapy in particular. I just want to mention a couple of names that two women, as it happens in particular. One is Violet Oaklander. These are the 60s, 70s. And Violet Oaklander wrote a famous book in the therapy world called Windows to Our Children, which is a gestalt approach. Now, I've used the term gestalt, and if, if you're not a therapist and you don't know what gestalt is, it comes from a German, it means shape or form. But Fritz Perls developed this whole form of therapy, and it was, again, much more creative, much more open, here and now, body awareness, um, looking at the whole, looking at everything, you know, not it, it's it's relational, very relational, very interactive, very being with sensations, what's happening right now. So the one of the beliefs there would be if if you can be in the moment, within the moment, all of the stuff from the past will be there. So whatever you need is going to come. That's one part of it. Uh, another aspect would be that, you know, there there is parts to us um, so we may have kind of conflict about that. So you get your famous empty chair therapy coming from Gestalt. Well, part of me wants to stay and part of me wants to go, well, let's talk to the part that wants to stay and let's talk. Let's see what they have to say. Because that, that conflict dialogue in your head can be hard, but if you bring it out, you know, and there's all various uh, creative ways of doing that, varying that, you know. So that, that was Gestalt therapy, very here now. I suppose it grew out of psychoanalysis because that's where Fritz Perls trained with Freud and it grew out of like phenomenology which is from Husserl kind of a philosophy um, that is very much what I'm talking about evolving phenomenal creativity we are here in this mystical magical way in this moment you know and it can never be repeated so it's very uh, has that mystical lovely more mysterious vibe to it in that way but in a, not in an airy fairy pretend way in a very phenomenal interesting concrete way because Gestalt is very concrete the here and now let's look how do you experience that right now and what's happening to you and again it's very relational which I love you know and it allows for experiments let's try out how would it be to what what's it like to you know they've got the top dog underdog I talked about the parts, that part of me saying you're a fucking idiot and it's part of me saying no you're not. How come the part that's saying the fucking idiot is the top dog? How did that come to be? Let's have a look at that. You know, tease that out a bit. What's that like right now? So you do that in the present moment. You're not trying to remember something. Although memories may come, you kind of go, fuck, that reminds me of this teacher. Or da -da, da -da, da -da. It's really, really interesting. So it's uh, Gestalt Rose out of psychoanalysis, psychoanalysis um, phenomenology so another thing that I came out of, not behaviorism, what would it be? I think it's just human, there's probably another one, another strong influence on it, but humanistic psychotherapy. Um, so from that, from Fritz Perls, who's quite a flamboyant, roguish type of character, lots of people got on, you know, learned Gestalt and opened up a whole way of working and it became very interesting and uh, this woman, Violet Oaklander, because again, a lot of these things came into family therapy, couples therapy began to be, and that's where a lot of the creativity happened as well. You know, in Italy, you had the Milan style of therapy or came from Italy. It's, it's really good. That's looking through the mirror and you interpret stuff and all. Grant, grant. But there are, you know, they found other ways. And some of it came through working with families where there was an addict or an alcoholic back in the 60s, 70s and opening that all out a bit. But Violet Oaklander, the windows to her children, were all these lovely exercises and experiments. And her kind of approach really, it's very, very simple really, it's really creative, effective. Uh, and it prioritizes the therapy, the therapist-client relationship more than interpretation, right? And the, the client's process. And she was brilliant at working with adolescents and children, which is a great approach because it's not boring. You know what I mean? Gestalt's not boring at all. Keep a, a young person interested. So again, it has that lovely kind of magical, experimental, creative, interesting, let's look at it, you know, and again, it's already, you can see it's tapping into the child or the adolescence, playfulness, even though they might be working through some difficult stuff. And you've got play therapy, often used with children, but great with adults, where you allow the person to be more playful, you know, let, let's try this, what would that be like, you know, kind of thing, you know, so... The parameters are much broader and wider in Gestalt therapy and, and the humanistic style therapies. So Violet Oaklander is 
wonderfully creative. Similar with Virginia Satir, she was another one back from the day, the 60s and 70s. Family reconstruction therapy was her thing. Transformational systemic therapy. You know, actions, emotions, perceptions um, within the family. Again, very broad. It's not very interpretive. The positive life energy, the growth, which really, if, if, if I come under the umbrella of the creativity of humanistic psychotherapy or healing, right? It's all about growth. It's all taken from really the earth, from from very natural processes in life. It's it's allowing, you know, I suppose in the family, if the family can get the right environment, it can grow. It can grow. But sometimes we'll, we'll grow a different way because we need to do that because it's not safe or it's not okay or we've misinterpreted something or we're not sure who we are in the world, you know. This engages you back in as you are um, to be an integral part of what's going on, you know, that your experience is valued. It's not that you have to be different to be accepted in this. And people like, you know, Satir and Oaklander and many, many more, but they're two big names in the kind of whole family therapy that had a, had a wonderfully creative impact on, on how we work. And I've certainly learned watching their videos or listening to them talk or reading their books over the years, um, that wonderful style of working. And it's, it's really, what I love about it is it's it's not stuffy or judgmental. It's very professional, but it doesn't have that. Again, you can you can spread your wings a bit. And you can get down on the floor and play if you want to, you know, literally. And, and I love that. You know, I love that kind of feeling uh, of, of openness and, and, and willingness to make a mistake, the gorgeous mistake. And then we'll learn from that. And then we realize the mistake wasn't a mistake at all. You know, you can't go wrong. You can't do anything wrong. And if we made it, if we bump into a wall or something that's a bit embarrassing, we have a laugh at it and go, that didn't work, did it? You know, and, and that's the work, you know. It's it's not like, hasn't got that tension that we're I'm trying to give the right answer or we're trying to get somewhere specific. It's like the phenomenology is, well, we're here now. Let's, let's grow here. Let's grow in this space, you know. So all of the kind of labels of there's something wrong with you, I have to do something different to be okay. In that environment, in that humanistic environment, they drop away. Now it's not ignoring pathology, if that's there and it's all, you know, you, obviously you, you work with that, but it's not the emphasis. It's not about trying to find something wrong with you and then, you know, uh, diagnose that and give you medication for that. I know there's times and places for that and that's fine, but, um, these other approaches and again no surprise it came out of the family therapy really other places too but really out of there because maybe because you're working with children you've got to be more creative you've got to find ways to engage that are going to be interesting you know and to some degree quite a lot of that then came out of um working with families and addiction and recognizing the, the impact there i'd have cut my teeth doing a lot of that type of work over the years you know, maybe different treatment centres or different day centres around that area, working with families as well, being able to practice some of that really, you know, dare to be, you know, a bit gestalty or like Fritz Perls or Oakland or one of these, you know, just to take a little bit of a risk, but do it in my way, you know, do it. Uh, of course, in the beginning, that's very scary to do. As you get on, you do that much, much more because you get more comfortable and confident and, you know, especially when you've got in your gut, like, well, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to do any harm. And if we do, I'd be, I'm, it wouldn't be intentional, you know, and hopefully I seldom do, but it can happen. You know, I'm not, I'm not perfect at all. Who is, who is, we say, it's interesting we say that, state the obvious. I can hear you all say, yeah, we know you're not perfect. <laughs> Why do you keep telling us we, we know you're not, you know? So I, as I'm probably thinking of finishing now, I'm just saying that uh, I thought it was important to do a, uh, flow part two to again name therapy and healing but also realize that real art real flow is everyday life you know lots of people are healing deeply without never going near therapy because of the way they think or engage with life because maybe their environments that allow them to or families that allow them to you know uh, or if you need to go into therapy or go somewhere or talk to someone or maybe it's a group of friends that let you be yourself, you know. Have you noticed that? Oh yeah, what's that called again? It's part of relational therapy. I, I love it, right? The, I'm gonna, it's, it's a gestalt model actually from 
What's that place in America? No, Ohio. Cleveland, Ohio. Cleveland, Cleveland style of therapy because they often give the name of the city that, that it became famous in. It's a Cleveland Gestalt relational therapy, right? And they've got what's called the uh, the contact, the field of contact, the field between you and me or me and the group or me and the family, that field. And this is fascinates me. Have you ever noticed how you're with a group of people or a certain person and you immediately relax? You're much more free to be yourself. You'll joke, take risks. You're not too conscious. You don't mind being a bit vulnerable. You feel safe. What is that? That's the field of contact, the energy field with that group of people or that person is safe, supportive, and you're quite, and you, you don't feel ashamed. You know, you very seldom feel ashamed in that energy. Because, yeah, the, one of the theories is in the field phenomenon, the field is where the shame is. You know, no, I got, again, I know it can get a bit tricky. Yes, it can be in you, but what it's saying is the field has inside of you and inside of the other elements of that is there, right? So you can heal it in the field. Extraordinary. Love this, right? I'm sure you do too. But think about it. Then you go into a different field of contact. You're the same person and you're with us. Oh, I feel uncomfortable when he's around or she's around. You're not blaming them. You may be to yourself, why am I a bit more? You know, they're not doing anything wrong. They're, you know, da, 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 da. And certain groups you go into, maybe a certain teacher, a certain workmate, you know. And, and, and you're the same you, but you just feel different. Right? Is that all about you? Maybe some is, but it's about the field. So there's something in that energy field. And it's not blaming anybody. That's quite different. Now we can adapt into that and kind of not be too influenced by it. But it's okay to recognize the healing bit here can be, oh, there's nothing wrong with me. There's just something in this field. There's something in this energy field between us that, yeah, it's just the way it is at this moment. Rather than me take that on as something, oh, why am I, what's wrong? Did I do something wrong on that part? And that can trigger all the old negative behavioral patterns. Or maybe I better try and make them laugh. Maybe I better try and please them because they look a bit grumpy or something's not right. Uh, you know, and then we're, we're taking on a lot of stuff out of the field that's not ours, right? So even the awareness of that, when that, if that happens to you, this is the field of contact. It's not, you don't have to personalize it. Yeah, I can adapt and adjust to that, breathe and be okay, but I don't have to take it on as a negative because I know there's another field of contact I'll go into and I'll be doing somersaults and dancing and singing in front of them without a shred of shame or embarrassment. I'm the same person. The field is different. Okay, we can't rely totally on the field, but that explains why we're drawn to certain groups more than others. And that's okay and I can practice when I go into an uncomfortable field being comfortable breathing through that maybe minimizing the amount of time I have to be in it but I have to be in it like in a workplace sometimes you're, you're thrown in with someone and you just don't it's another version of we don't click it's the vibe it's the energy it's the you know it's not flowing freely for you and they may experience the same then sometimes you can have a conversation with some people if they're open and you, you find a nice meeting point and sometimes you don't you know, sometimes you just don't. There's no way you're going to click. But you'll say hello, goodbye. You can be courteous. Good day. Get on with your business, you know. Sometimes it can be a little bit toxic. You know, but even then you're recognizing there's something in the field. Once you're checking yourself and you're not doing anything negative to anybody and you probably usually aren't. You know what I mean? You're just trying your best in that moment. So that's okay too. Don't try too hard there to, to fit in. I've done that a lot now. Jesus Christ, how we You know. I think out of a childhood trigger into fear, I better please you, make this okay. Because something, you know, what we call the catastrophic expectation, something terrible is going to happen, you know. And of course, the catastrophic expectation, at a, well, there's a practical element at a deeper level, usually means the catastrophe has already happened as a kid and you've survived it, but it was pretty awful at the time, whatever it was. And so there may be remnants of that feeling left, but it can be very, very powerful when it happens and then it, and your head kicks in and before you know where you are, you're like locking yourself in your room, <laughs> you know, they're coming to take me away, the van's outside, the white coats, <laughs> you know, um, starting from simply someone looking at you a bit crooked, you know, and it was probably something, you know, they were having a bad day. <laughs> so uh, that's the catastrophic expectation, you know. Um, 
I, I oh, well, I will mention a name because she uh, she acknowledged I was a therapist, and that's Lynn Rowan, uh, who made a lovely comment about me on, on the radio, which other people told me about, which again, I thank you, Lynn. But uh, when I said catch yourself expectation, we were both laughing at something, and I think it was, and I, I, I'm, I'm 100% sure she won't mind me saying this. Whatever the situation was, you know, what, what would you reckon would happen there? Well, the only thing that happened there would be I could actually be quite happy and okay, you know. And I thought, how brilliant is that, you know? Um, and I, uh, I, I want to impart that to everyone. When you get that catastrophic expectation and you actually see it through, what's likely to happen by this? Because it usually comes if I'm changing a behavior or making a decision. I'm actually going to be okay and I could be a bit freer and yeah there may be a bit of a remnant of something from before there may not be and I'll check that and, and we're all good you know so let's have uh, non-catastrophic expectations let's expect warmth kindness uh, balance calm not demand it just anticipate it and it may not always come but it's okay it's more likely to come when you anticipate it and if it doesn't you don't get too shocked it's okay you know and that's another creative way of, of, of a change of how you see things. Um, I think it was, I don't know if, if, if I heard Wayne Dyer saying, and I'll finish on this note, change the way you see things and the things you see will change. So on that note, episode 31, uh, creative flow, healing, magic, looking at things differently. I will leave you for now. And we'll be joining you next week on episode 32, whatever that may be about. We'll just leave it to the universe and see what comes. And I'll say goodbye to you for now. Thanks very much for listening. Thank you for joining me in the Twilight Conversations. If you'd like to get in contact with us regarding any aspect of the show, you can get in touch at thetwilightconversations at gmail.com. So the Twilight Conversations is an independent project. We're not getting any help from anybody. No major corporations or anything like that. So if you like the content, if you like what you're hearing, please continue to support us via our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash the Twilight Conversations.